Welcome to the Ulster Rugby Roundup. We're slap bang in the centre of a European window. I'm here to deliver the midterm report with me, Gareth Hanna, or Jonathan Bradley. Hello, Jonathan. Hiya, how's it going? And Adam McKendrick. Hello, Adam. Hey, guys. So, Ulster's unbeaten home run is finally at an end after 25 games and over two years to lose left Kingspan with a 29-22 victory. We'll assess that performance, the significance of the result, and what comes next for Ulster. We also have a Dan McFarlane contract talk to look at as well as of course the world cup draw which may well turn out very familiar indeed um so before all that how are you both is it nice jonathan to be looking back at a defeat for once you you like getting your teeth into a good defeat don't you you were giving off at them winning so much <laughs> it was the ideal type of defeat for me really because like they played sort of better than i expected but uh, it was a great game so if they're going to lose you know it was not an unexpected defeat. They played pretty well. It was a great game and you got another chance to see Cheslin Colby up close. So, you know, if they're going to lose, that's the way to do it, I would say. I'll tell you what, it's it's not good whenever it's a coast game and you're doing a live blog and trying to do a report at the same time because there's just so much happening. You're spread so thin. It's horrendous. Of course, I'm happy that Ulster were competing in that game until the very end. But, you know, I'm sitting there with about 10 minutes ago going... To at least get another score here, that would just be that would just be quite nice. Is <laughs> if just both lost us listeners to these answers, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I said if they're going to lose, not that I was happy that they lost. Just it was an interesting game. Right. Yeah, I was. I wasn't happy they lost either. <laughs> so, what about the the performance before we we get into talking about to lose and the intricacies of it? What about overall, Jonathan? Um, was this if you look past the the result and the significance of it was this another encouraging night in the, the progression of Ulster like you know you don't want to talk too much about sort of like moral victories and defeat or anything like that but we had talked last week about the number of things that I thought were stacked against them which included the injuries the pro 14 deficiencies in preparing them the fact that they'd only had their Ireland players back sort of on the Tuesday in terms of full training sessions for a Friday game. And I thought all three of those things were going to be pretty significant up against a team that's been in the semi-finals the past two years, one of the four best teams in Europe. Really, if I think if you take out, obviously, just two pieces, arguably three pieces of individual brilliance. Now, they still count, obviously, towards the score. It's not to dismiss them, but it's a lot more... E- it's a lot easier to look at them as isolated incidences rather than any systemic failure. Um, So the fact that they were in the game really the whole way, pretty much up until that second Colby try, I actually thought they were going to win. Mm -hmm. But in the end, I just think the injuries before the game, obviously the loss of Jordy the day of the game, and then Carter and Katsia early in the second half, I just think they they ran out of steam a bit more than anything else just up front so all those things considered like it was a relatively encouraging day for Ulster obviously as much as it can be when you lose what do you think Adam if you were Dan McFarland what would you been been thinking after the game you've been able to have your pragmatic hat on and say with the next few years in mind uh, that's all right yeah if I was Dan McFarland and I was looking at that team that finished the game you know you've got Andrew Warwick at loose heads You've got Dave O'Connor coming off the bench. You've got Greg Jones coming off the bench. 
Uh, Stuart Murray was sitting on the bench and still had to come on. You had James Hume starting. You had Mike Lowry at fullback. If you had said to anybody uh, a year ago even that that Ulster team would have taken Toulouse right to the wire, then I think you probably would have doubted them. But Ulster just kept in there. And they, they easily could have won that game. You know, whenever Maydard is Sinbin, they go to the corner, uh, they lose that line-out. But if they win that line-out, the way them all have been going, you would have backed them to go over. And if Cody lands that kick, they go ahead with, what well, that would have been about eight minutes to go with an extra man. So you would have backed them to finish it out from there. So I think there's a lot of positives to take from it. Obviously, you've got to look at it as a defeat. They have lost. And you have to look at where the deficiencies were there. And that was in you know, not stopping the individual brilliance and they'll have looked at why that was and why Colby was able to get down the wing on that broken play for his first try and how DuPont was able to break in behind off that scrum and then manage to step Mike Lowry to go over. But for the most part, I thought Ulster coped with Toulouse really well. So Jonathan, if that's how, how close Ulster were to beating Toulouse and as you said earlier, though, were too far away from full strength with Henderson not being there. Jordy Murphy wasn't available. Carter and Kutsia going off at the start of the second half. Robert Balakoon, of course, who could forget, not there. Will Allison not there. If Ulster were at full strength, they must be getting damn close to these sort of top European sides now. Well, yeah, like I still think they're probably in that all things being equal sort of five through ten bracket rather than the, the top four, if you like. But certainly... If they're at full strength, and it's very difficult to ever be at full strength, obviously, but at full strength and even missing a few players, I think they'd fancy their chances against anyone in Belfast, even with missing the fans, which um, I thought was going to be a big factor for them. But I suppose what I'm saying is that if they don't make the quarterfinals, which it looks like they're not going to, I wouldn't necessarily say it's down to a a regression as a team. It's Those are the sort of small margins that you're dealing with and losing the home game against Toulouse that you could have won and then there only being four games even just the fact that you drew Toulouse when you had a 50-50 chance of getting Montpellier Yeah, like if, if Ulster don't make the knockout stages as it looks like they're not going to yeah, all that will have to be remembered and uh, the gnawing and gnashing of teeth should be uh, delayed for this year maybe well, if, if, if the format has harmed anyone it's Ulster yeah. and there'll be other, other teams that will say that as well but getting Toulouse because the top 14 season was cut short last year, you know, as fourth seeds is horrendous luck. You know, that Ulster to lose is a game that you would love to see in the knockouts, not in the group stages. And <laughs> it's the same with a lot of the games this year. You know, yeah. you would have loved to have seen Claremont Bristol in the knockouts instead of the pool stages, but it is what it is. And it's just interesting. So, sorry, you mentioned Robert Balakoon there. I'd have loved to have seen him up against Colby. Now, I'm not saying he necessarily would have been able to stop Colby, but. For me, Balakun is Ulster's best defensive winger. And just to see him going up against Colby would have been quite interesting to see how he would have handled it. Well, now that you mention him, we'll, we'll discuss him now, Adam. Uh, it was one of the other Ulster players, I can't remember who it was now, who was sort of uh, discussing the Jacob Stockdale's, not failure, but the, you know that he, he couldn't stop him scoring, maybe particularly that second try. And he said something about it being probably the most difficult job in rugby right now to, to cope with with Colby. Uh, a special player and another couple of special tries. It was not as much as, you know, well, you can't really point the finger at, at Jacob when you take into account just what he's up against, can you? No, you can't. Uh, it was Alan O'Connor who said it's probably the toughest job in world rugby to mark Ches and Colby, and he's absolutely right. 
you can't take him one-on-one. And even so for that first try, the positivity that he had to chip over the top of Mike Lowry, even though he had two Ulster players on his inside who were ahead of him, he then outpaced them around the outside to get the ball and score in the corner. I'm not sure there's another winger in world rugby who scores that. I don't think there's another winger who manages to get to that ball and get over in the corner. That's just how special this guy is. And then being able to get up off the ground and score the second one is outrageous. So it's one of those ones where he he does have that little bit of stardust that can swing a game just like that. Uh, and any team in the world would struggle to defend him. It, it just so happens that he's done it twice against Ulster. And of course, you look at the fact that he's up against Stockdale and you say, well, Stockdale can't handle Colby. I say you put any international winger in that position and ask him to defend Colby one-on-one and they're probably going to struggle. There are very few players in the world who would be able to match up with Cheslin Colby in a one-on-one defensive situation. So again, I, th- there are ways to stop Colby. You know, if if Cheslin Colby was unstoppable, then you may as well just concede every time you came up against Toulouse and just say, go on ahead, have your five points and we'll see you next week. And there, in order to do that, you need to try and defend him as, as a two. You know, you need to have someone on your inside so that you can try and force Colby on the outside to make the tackle. But it's just a testament to how good he is that Ulster talked so much about him and how to, how to stop him. And he still manages to score two tries. He's just an exceptional player. And as Johnny said earlier, it was a joy to watch him play. You know, it's a, whenever it's happening against Ulster, it, it is hard to watch. But at the same time, you just have to sit back and say, this guy is something special. And it says it all uh, as well, Jonathan. I mean, DuPont's try was was good enough. And <laughs> good enough player as he is. There hasn't really been any chat about him, or not much anyway, after the game, which says it all about the quality of Kobe on the night. But the two of them are, are just... Uh, Spectacular. Yeah, it was funny. Like um, coming out of the stadium, he'd obviously taken the bang to the face. And whenever myself and Michael were leaving the stadium, he was just standing there talking on his mobile phone, sort of unnoticed by everybody. Um, so a, a fairly uh, unassuming superstar, shall we say, but probably like the best from half in the world. And on any other day, you come away talking about his try rather than Colby's. But that's. I suppose the level of star power that um, Toulouse have, like, and that's even on a day when they kept Entomac pretty quiet. I thought the mall. We had talked uh, plenty about it last week and how it would stand up to uh, the superior opposition that Toulouse obviously provide. But two tries for Rob Herring would indicate that it stood up remarkably well. Yeah, the mall was obviously really good. Like again, speaking to Alan O'Connor about it, he sort of said that you know we don't have to change too much of what we're doing with I'm all obviously like whether it's effective or not is more to do with you getting all your stuff right so whether you're playing a bad pro 14 team or a good European team you're still trying to do the same sort of thing and obviously it was effective there was up against the mall defense to lose I think that was one of the areas of the game that you were most interested to see if Ulster could carry what they were doing in the Pro 14 India. And obviously, it was really their main weapon in the game, if you like. Like, there was never any doubt about what they were going to do. Like, whenever the before Herring's first try, obviously, they went to the corner and got the penalty. Like, they could have taken the points, but before Toulouse had even um, given the ball back to their referee after the penalty, Herring was already on the touchline with a tile waiting. Like, it was just, they knew instantly in their heads that they were going to back their mall because that was the route that they 
used to get into a lot of games, but still felt confident that they could do it against a side as good as Toulouse and as big as Toulouse, obviously, too. Well, we're discussing the the, the work of the, the pack. Paul McIntyre asked, do Ulster need a bigger or heavier front five to take us to the next level and become serious contenders for the Champions Cup? And if so, how do you go about doing that? When people talk about these monstrously sized packs, they're not really talking about premiership packs. It is almost solely French packs that people are talking about. And like, it's been five years since the French team won the European Cup. It's been only too long of one of in the last decade out of the French teams. So it's not like it's the only way to succeed. Like, obviously, I suppose to take the two best teams of that run or of that time, Saracens and Leinster, they both have great tight fives, but it's not like they have gigantic tight fives. They just have good tight fives. Uh, the way, I suppose, unfortunately, that you improve your pack in the short term is imports, but like, you look at the average salaries of the Pro 14 and where Pro 14 teams are spending their money is at lock and number eight. And the reality of matter is that Ulster are probably big contributors to their having an import of number eight and number, well, at lock with Sam Carter. Like, so, you know, if you choose to spend your money there, as Ulster did say with when John Afoa was here, it means that you're not spending it elsewhere. So you're not spending it in the second row, you're not spending it in the back room. For me, if you look at Eric O'Sullivan, Jack McGrath, Marty Moore, Tom O'Toole, Ulster's props are at a decent enough level for where they want to get to. Like I don't, I don't see that necessarily as the main problem or a driving problem in the same way that I don't necessarily see just having the biggest pack as the route to success. I'm not sure why this question is being brought up after Friday night in particular as well. I didn't think Ulster's pack were overpowered by Toulouse in the slightest like also well, monster, like they got monsters at the scrum so I'm guessing well, well no I, I understand that but well I suppose we'll, we'll bring up the scrum then uh, like Dan McFarland has very adamantly said that you know Ulster were not the ones being bettered at the scrum now Sorry, I, I should have said allegedly monsters yes, at the scrum. Al- yes allegedly being monstered at the scrum look I don't know enough about the dark arts of the front row to know if Dan's right or if he's trying to back up his props whenever they were actually being monstered and the ref was right but the mall went well Toulouse's forwards weren't punching massive holes whenever they carried the the only one was to Corey which was just he managed to get a bit of momentum off the back of the mall and got a massive carry which then ended them up with uh, ended up with them scoring a try but for for 79 minutes of that game Ulster were not hammered in the forwards they they went toe-to-toe with them now if if the scrum was an issue then you know look marty murr for the most part is not a prop who gets beaten in the scrum every single week he doesn't give away a lot of penalties in the scrum so one week where he's bettered by a loose head should not immediately raise red flags and make people think we need to replace him like that 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 to me is a knee-jerk reaction it's just a one-off week from a prop but I would I wouldn't say that if you looked at Friday night's game and you said Ulster need better players in their type five to compete, I don't think that's the right response. I think it's a we just had one of those nights where the referee looked unkindly on our tight head, who has done so much this season, so so much since he came to Ulster to improve both his fitness and his scrummaging that I, I don't think that's a problem. 
Okay, well, let's hear a little bit of, of what Dan had to say then about the, the referee's interpretation of what was going on uh, at the scrum. We have a definitive policy, um, and I'm not being trite, I'm being honest. We, we coach legal scrummaging, okay? So if, if our um, uh, props or, or hookers um, have habits that are illegal, we, we don't coach. We don't coach that. We coach. We we, we coach for legal training. Why? Because I believe that the long-term benefits of that are that people see you as a team that wants to be positive in what you're doing. You know, when you're recognised for that, it's much easier to deal in the difficult situations that that, that often come across. Um, come across in games for the referees. The referees have an extremely difficult job in and around the scrum. So we want to try and consistently show, not good pictures, because that sounds like we're trying to we're trying to paint something that's not, we want to actually do the right thing. And you know, I I think over over the last um, uh, two and a half years, and with in fact all the scrums that I've coached, you know, it, it would be acknowledged. Generally speaking, we're trying to do things right. Well, we're always trying to do things right, but generally speaking, we do do things right. You know, and then, and then and then it is it is what it is, and and sometimes you know, it becomes very frustrating. But as a um, um, as a as a general rule, you know, I'd be pretty happy with uh, with with the way that we're we're, we're refereed. So, Jonathan, what did you what did you make of Dan's complaints? I just thought it was interesting how annoyed he was, um, because what like watching it back on BT the next day, like in his post match interview, I don't really remember him being, I suppose, that visibly frustrated solely at a refereeing decision and obviously it's a bit different when there's only 500 fans in the stadium and I normally sit on the other side of the door anyway but I've never seen him burst out of the coach's box to remonstrate with a refereeing decision during the game before either and this is his third season so for my money and as I say I don't have a complete picture because I was sitting in a different seat to where I normally sit it was as outwardly annoyed as he's been about anything um, refereeing wise and decision-wise since he's been here. Obviously, you know, you look at the scrum and I think Toulouse won the second most amount of penalties on their own scrum in the European Cup last year. So they are known for being able to e-guide these decisions. But the fact of the matter was, I suppose, that that third one, at a time when Ulster's discipline on the whole had been brilliant, like their first five penalties, three of them were at the scrum. They conceded a few more later in the game, but that gave Toulouse, that scrum which came from a forward pass that Ulster thought should have been whistled for an offside penalty, gave Toulouse a chance at them all. So Ulster hadn't been given them the opening and these scrum penalties were giving them a foothold, I suppose, to get into their 22. And while Rob Herring came back and scored after it, at the time that Toulouse score felt like it was going to be a big swing in momentum because it was just after Carter and Katsia had gone off as well. So... All in all, it ended up in a, a defeat for Ulster, obviously. Adam, what now? Three wins, obviously, we reckon required to get uh, into one of those top four places and a, a quarterfinal place. But is the, the Challenge Cup now a more realistic target? And uh, what do you think the need to get into it? Um, I wouldn't say realistic target. I would say it's probably a realistic finishing spot for them. Um, like They'll still be going for the Champions Cup, you know, if... If they gave up now and took sort of the Chris Boyd approach of uh, play the academy players for the rest of the tournament, I think there would be a lot of disappointment because they are still in it. You know, one defeat doesn't knock them out. It just makes their task considerably harder. So it'll probably take three wins and probably two bonus point wins to 
to get them into the last eight. Now, whenever you consider they have to go to the Ernest Villon in January, then <laughs> you sort of think that's a bit of a pipe dream. But look, they have to they have to give it a go. You know, we've we've seen in previous years just how much it means to a squad to have something to play for going into that final round of uh, Champions Cup pool games. You know, you remember back to, I, th- I think the last time Ulster had nothing to play for in round six was the Bordeaux game uh, at Kingspan. And, you know, that's probably one of the worst European games I've ever been to in Belfast. Like that was a horrendous day. So even just the mentality and the boost that of confidence that it would give for them to be going to Toulouse, knowing that they could still achieve something if they came away with a, an improbable win. So I think, they they've got to keep in it. They've got to still keep their uh, keep their aspirations high that they can still reach the quarterfinals, knowing that you know I, I don't think anybody's going to kid themselves within that room. You know I don't think anybody's going to say to themselves we're, we're still in the box seat here. We're still in with a with a really good chance of the last date. It will take them to win all three games, and it'll probably take another team to fall away as well. But you know going to Gloucester this week who are a team that, you know, aren't going great. They sent their academy boys over to Leon last week. So it looks like the Champions Cup isn't really a priority for them. So if they could pick up the win this week, sneak a bonus point, they're not out of it. But again, it'll take a massive amount for them to reach the last eight now. I think Challenge Cup is maybe a more realistic ending spot for them than the last eight of the Champions Cup. Well, Johnny, Connor McKenna asks, are Ulster better off in the Challenge Cup for this season uh, because of a realistic chance of winning it? You do have to wonder just what an impact lifting a trophy might have on this squad in terms of uh, just, I don't know, inspiring, like, giving confidence as a boost. Everybody always talks about the, the significance of winning trophies and what it can do. Might be a blessing in disguise if they drop into the Challenge Cup. Well, in the first instance, I suppose... You have to remember that the Challenge Cup will still be difficult to win. Um, yeah, they're not like guaranteed they're going to win it, but like yeah. they'll have a good chance. Well, just crying yeah. Challenge Cup champions now, you know. There's going to be uh, there's going to be 16 teams in the knockouts of the Challenge Cup. Um, obviously, with the eight dropping down from the Champions Cup, so there's going to be some good teams in it. Actually, there's going to be lots of good teams in it. So it's not a prerequisite that they would uh, even be among the favourites for that competition either. If you look at the teams on their side of the draw, they would be coming down with them. But I think, in general, it's very hard to quantify the value of winning second-tier competitions. Like, Cardiff haven't, you know, it's not done Cardiff any good. Bristol haven't won it last year. You know, it didn't look like it prepared them particularly well for that first 20 minutes against Claremont. And look at the team that they've got. Sevilla, you know, it's not like they win La Liga or the Champions League, despite the fact that they always win the Europa League. So, like, I, I understand the idea that just the experience of winning a trophy is a valuable one to have and success leads to more success type of thing. But I just think it's very hard to quantify, even to the point where, you know, if you're looking at it realistically, would you rather win the Challenge Cup? Would the benefit of that experience outweigh how much it might help your chances of winning the Pro 14 if you had four weekends off between April and the Pro 14 final. But it just could be such a sparse end of the season. Is that really a benefit to have so much time off? Well, sorry, the fact that the last 16 in the quarterfinal are back-to-back maybe doesn't help because um, you've got two weeks then. And the fact that, I don't know, by April they may have sealed their Pro 14 playoff spot anyway if you 
yeah. think that it's not sealed already. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, that experience, I suppose, of playing in the big games could be beneficial, but I don't know. Like, I'm on board. I think it's what there's so many young players, and it just seems like they have everything. They're so close to winning trophies now. Just the fact of getting over the line in one, which, as you said, like it's second tier, but it's not as if it's like a Mickey Mouse competition. Like, they're going to no, put it's not, but it's just be... the mental benefit. So, yeah. does the mental benefit of winning a second tier competition? really produce the benefit that we think it does because the history suggests that it doesn't like you know very few sides cite you know winning the challenge cup as something that really helps their progression along the line like even when Leinster done it it was the end of one team and it was a different Leinster team that then went on to win more trophies but equally you brought football into it Jonathan not me but you know you get managers like Alex Ferguson who talk about the and Jose Mourinho who talk about the significance of winning the league cup which is a Mickey Mouse competition and just what that did for their teams in terms of just knowing how to how to win. You look at the difference. Well, that's not true, but, is it? Yeah, you, you win you win the you win the League Cup really early in the season and you can kick on from that. In the Challenge Cup, you know, you, you win it the week before your domestic playoffs begin. So, you know, there, there's not really much time to kick off the back of that. Mm-hmm. You know, if if you win the League Cup, you've won it in February. And it's one of several cups you're part of. Mm. The European Cup is one of two cups you're part of in rugby. So, and you win it so late in the season, you're already in that stage where if you don't have momentum, then you're not going to do much in the playoffs. And if you have momentum, winning a trophy isn't going to really add much to it because you've already got it. So I, I, I would say Ulster would, Ulster would be much better in the Champions Cup. If they drop down into the Challenge Cup, you know they should obviously try and win it, but um, I, I think they'll be disappointed if they're in the, cha- the Challenge Cup. It, it may be where they end up, but I, I think they'll be disappointed yeah. because they, these guys are conditioned that it's Pro 14 and Champions Cup and nothing else. Yeah. So, well, look, if Ulster go on to win the Challenge Cup and then win more trophies, and all the players come out in years to come to talk about how the Challenge Cup fired them on to all this. I will remind me, myself and Connor McKenna will never be undermined in the two of you about it. <laughs> um, so the trip to, to Gloucester, sorry, on Saturday then, uh, quarter past three kickoff on Saturday afternoon. As you said earlier, Adam, um, Gloucester don't really, what was it, 55 10 they were beaten last yep. weekend? They don't look like they, they give a monkey's. <laughs> so uh, it's it's going to be a bonus point win uh, for Ulster, isn't it? We're back I mean, to the territory of certain. <laughs> well, look, Gloucester at home, and I'm sure they'll be welcoming back a lot of their international guys. You know, the likes of Johnny May, uh, Louis Reece Samet, uh, all didn't play last week. Chris Harris from Scotland. I'm trying to think who else they'll have back. So, look, the, it'll it'll be a different game at King's home. You know, that even though they've signaled their intentions for the Champions Cup with that team they sent to France last weekend. They'll not want to lose at home. They will have fans in King home, King's home, so they won't want to send out a half-strength team for them to get tanked. You know, they'll they'll want to give a good representation of themselves. So, I don't think you can learn too much from the Leon game. And uh, Stuart McCluskey said that himself. You know, he said whenever they're doing their their pre-match prep, they're going to look at their Premiership stuff rather than their. Uh, their game last week because that'll give them a better understanding of how they're going to play and I, I completely agree so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say this is by any means a foregone conclusion you know Gloucester have a lot of guys who can 
who can definitely threaten. But at the same time, Ulster, I think, you know, we, we've praised them because their performance last week was good, even in defeat. So we haven't seen, you know, a massive dip from Ulster to say that this team suddenly gone off the boil from those eight wins. They were still good. So I would say if they put in a performance like they did on Friday this weekend, then I think they should be okay. But they're they're not going to find it as easy as they are, not not for a second. This is going to be a different Gloucester team that takes to the field on Saturday. So Ulster team-wise then, we obviously got the injury update yesterday. Uh, told us that Sam Carter and Marcel Critzi are both going through the return-to-play protocols. Jack McGrath's out. So obviously... Uh, Carter's omission in particular leaves them rather short at lock to say the least. Obviously, in Henderson's out, Kieran Treadwell's suspended. Ross Barnett wanted to check does the, the A match uh, from last weekend count towards Treadwell's ban and therefore allow him to return this weekend against Gloucester? But uh, it doesn't because the two matches were in the same weekend, so you can't use both because he wouldn't have been playing. Uh, in, in both games so um, unfortunately no way around uh, round it that way for Ulster uh, Johnny asks what is the IFU and Pro 14's policy on medical jokers could do with some backup at lock if Henley's out for a bit do short term contracts still fall into Irish eligibility rules Jonathan medical joker coming in at lock no no um, like Ulster squad is by and large built to do without Henderson for the majority of the season anyway so unless they were going to get somebody in to play this weekend <laughs> we're running out of time for that too um, yeah given that it's Tuesday no um, the RFU eligibility laws are not laws at, now anyway it, it used to be a set a thing that was set in stone if you could have four NIQs and one project player that, that doesn't exist anymore it's just it's a case by case basis but given the money that would be involved I don't see you know they can still field a team yeah, Treadwell's going to be back next week. Carter could be back this week. It's just he's going through the return to play protocols. Henderson's the only one that's long term, mm-hmm. and the squad is built to do without him long term anyway because he misses more games for us than he plays. Mm-hmm. Well, look, we'll just get on to the team for this week. And then Stuart Martin had asked, um, with progression difficult, uh, should also concentrate on the Pro 14 and give some of the academy players uh, a chance to play in their remaining three European games. I think you, you addressed that earlier, Adam, and said that that uh, should and will not be, be happening. I think it would be a massive surprise if Ulster did go down that route, especially already for this weekend. So what about the, the team? What are we looking at, especially if Carter and uh, Kutsia don't make it? They don't really have an awful lot of options. Like, um, Jordy will be back in. Um his fiance having given birth on Friday, so he'll be back in. Congratulations. But you never know. I hope he doesn't because he should have better things to do this time. <laughs> um, so if they're missing Carter, I suppose is where it gets not interesting because again, there's not, there's not an awful lot they can do if he is out. You know, Dave O'Connor then comes in <laughs> yeah. and Maddie Ray, who won a school's cup as a lock against um, Ian Henderson. Funnily enough, um, Belfast Royal Academy when he was at Ballymena Academy um, probably provides the cover as a lock. Um, Greg Jones is versatile enough as well, I suppose. So you've got those two guys there and that's more likely than seeing somebody from the academy because as we mentioned last week, you know, um, First year academy players don't really 
by and large feature for the senior team. It's in the second year that you expect to make them to make that jump. Okay. Uh, what about elsewhere in the team? Would you make any other uh, any other changes for the weekend? I don't think so. Like they, I think they went with their best available that they had, and I think they'll go with their best available again. Like the thing about missing so many players is you don't really have that many decisions to make. Like really, Murr or Shum in the center. Mm-hmm. Maybe an alteration in the back three, rotate Gilroy in for Fadis or something. But we're you know we're we're talking like for like here. We're not, we're not talking. Yeah. Any major changes? Maybe Tom O'Toole in for Marty Murr after after what happened last week. But again, you know, we're talking about how you know Dan was very adamant that Marty wasn't struggling at the scrum; he was just being uh, pinged by the referee unfairly. So, you know, you you then back your guy if you feel he was going well. So, what well, one thing one thing I will say is that they they shouldn't just you know start throwing all the academy guys in, but losing your first game up, it does give you a little bit more freedom if you maybe want to try someone, you know, maybe they want to give David McCann a game off the bench or something like that. Not handing out token caps, but if you feel like, you know, he's really impressing in training or something like that, and ordinarily you maybe wouldn't put him in because you want the experience in a big Champions Cup game, well, maybe this is the chance to put him in because you feel like, well, you've got nothing to lose now that you've lost a home game. So I just think that like, I just think that's too much like the year that they had Exeter and Bordeaux and everyone was like, oh, you know, they have to go and target the bonus point. And then in the end, all they had to do was win the games. Like if you pick an inexperienced team and Toulouse go out and get beat twice by Exeter over the next two weeks, and then you're not in a position to take advantage of Toulouse being out of the competition in the last week, then you look pretty stupid. And no, this this is what podcast slagging you off and saying you were an idiot. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I, I'll put my hands up to that. But I'm this is what I'm saying. I'm not saying hand out token caps. I'm not saying just start throwing guys in because you feel like ah uh, we you know we're gonna afford to do this. But if you genuinely see you know Dan's made such a big point this season. Everyone's made such a big point in pre-match conferences that if someone is impressing in training then they will be given a shot. If David McCann is lights out in training, if he's doing every single thing right and he's impressing, and I'm not just talking about David McCann, by the way, sorry, I'm just using him as an example, given that Marcel's out, but mm-hmm. if anybody from you know the academy or a younger perspective is lights out in training and pretty much outplaying everybody else in his position, well, then now you've got the freedom where mm-hmm. you can maybe put them on the bench because you're sort of behind the eight ball. Well, if they're playing everyone in a position, then they should be in the team anyway, regardless of what the status is. I think there's an element of experience you need in the Champions Cup. I feel like there are some. I feel like in the Champions Cup, you can't throw guys in, you know, straight away. You've got to ease them in. Well, look, we'll we'll see what we see when the team is announced on the, the Friday. That'll be one. So, um, a couple. Of, well, one more question to deal with. There were a couple of questions that felt like it was a bit of a, a European postmortem already. Maybe this whole podcast has felt like that. I don't know. But one of them came in from Donal, who said that Toulouse have three players who would make a World Fifteen at the minute, and he'd argue that they that Ulster were, but he'd argue that Ulster were the better team on Saturday. The difference was just that one Toulouse superstar. So, given rugby finances, we're unlikely to see another signing like Piatai at Ulster. So. Should we expect a prolonged period of Euro disappointment or do you think we can squeeze a few more drops of talent out of the, the current crop of players to compete with the very best in Europe? 
Well, in a way, I think Donald sort of answers his own question by bringing up Piatai. Like every game that Piatai played for Ulster, met Ulster had the best player on the pitch, but he never played a knockout game for them. Like we can get carried away about the need to have an individual superstar on the back of Colby swinging the game into Lewis's favour, but like it's not generally the way the rugby works. It certainly wasn't the way that worked for Ulster when they had Piatai. So, I, like, yeah, I wouldn't get too carried away about needing somebody from a world 15 and like mm. I don't know for me anyway could see it when he's on form and fit wouldn't be far away from a world 15 and number 8 either so mm-hmm. we, should, we should also remember that when Toulouse signed Colby he wasn't anything special you know he wasn't a world class winger he wasn't someone that anybody was talking about and in fact whenever Toulouse signed him I have vague recollections of him being a depth player. He wasn't expected to come in and be this, you know, star winger for them. It's only since he's come to Toulouse that he's suddenly found this incredible ability to step anybody and pretty much avoid contact at any opportunity. So for me, that speaks more not to Toulouse's ability to go out and sign guys by just throwing a load of money at him. I'm sure that played a part, but, you know, Colby isn't one of these springbok stars that they went and said we'll give you massive amounts to come and play for us he's a guy who they basically picked up from the depth chart of i think it was the stormers was it um and brought him to toulouse and said you know come and play for us so that gives ulster a lot of optimism that they can go and do the same you know they've signed matt faddis um who was a depth player with the highlanders what if he turned out to be another colby you know or they, they can go and find someone else who maybe isn't a starter with a super rugby team or what might now be a pro 16 team and bring him in and he could end up being a world-class superstar. You know, it's just, it's one of those things where I think it talks more to their recruitment than, you know, Colby's individual brilliance. To lose whoever scouted Colby and decided he's the perfect guy to bring in for us should be getting massive amount of plaudits because that's, that's an incredible signing. And there's the homegrown players that Ulster have that could still, like I'm not saying mm. Balakir and Larry or Jacob Stockdale, who we forget <laughs> for a couple of seasons was unstoppable, um, mm. that are still young. Like these guys are still all under 20, what, about 24 years old. Like who says in, in the next four or five years, they're not going to become, not Kobe levels, but not kicking the ass off it either. So um uh, well, with minus Stockdale, but those guys have to become Ireland internationals because for me, that's you know the key to winning in Europe is just having as many test level players playing in the mm-hmm. Champions Cup as you can. It's not about having one superstar and 14 other guys, which is I know it's not what Donald's saying about Toulouse, obviously, because they have so many other good players, but it's just about being the best collective that you can be, and that's the case in rugby to a much greater degree than any other sport. And I think that's why Friday night felt so noticeable and felt like such an outlier because it was swung so decisively by an individual, but it's a rarity more than um, something that you have to aspire to being able to do. Yeah. Well, um, time's ticking on. So uh, a couple of other matters to address. One, uh, a bit of breaking news that, as always, um, breaks at an unhelpful time for the podcast just after we get uh, past the topic. Adam, tell us about uh, Gloucester's breaking news. Yeah, fly half Danny Cipriani has announced he's left the club with immediate effect, so he will not be playing this weekend. It comes off the back of some 
rather strong rumours that Scotland fly half Adam Hastings is going to be joining them next season. So um, this could be further confirmation that Cipriani didn't see himself playing a big role at the club going forward and has decided he's better off seeking an opportunity elsewhere. So um, I'm, th- I'm not sure if he was going to play this weekend anyway. It seems like they've been uh, favouring Lloyd Evans at 10 recently. So uh, He's definitely not playing now. <laughs> Yeah, he's definitely not playing now. <laughs> we can say that for sure. But um, very interesting timing. Mm. I'll say that. Um, I, I would understand, you know, players announcing now that they're leaving at the end of the season. But to leave right now makes me think he's got something else lined up already. But um, always an interesting character. It'll be very interesting to see where he ends up next. Yeah, we'll see. So on contract news, Jonathan, it was something you were talking to Dan McFarland about at uh, Monday's press conference i know i hadn't given any thought to the fact that his contract expires at the end of this season but he asked him how that's going that it seemed uh, he seemed optimistic that he'd, he'd be here and uh, beyond that well he's talking about being able to see his long-term future here and talking about his coaching ticket for next season so i suppose that's as as encouraged as you can be yeah i think it's very important obviously like it goes without saying that it needs to be the top priority, I think, to get him to extend and stay because otherwise you're almost back to square one, which is something Ulster have been a position Ulster have been more than familiar with in uh, recent years. But to go back there after such, I suppose, two and a half years of such strong progress, like it's not breaking news that his contract's up or anything. Like, you know, he signed a three year contract when he first arrived. It's just, I suppose, this is the first time he's been asked about it. Yeah. So, look, we'll see. It sounds very much like it's going to be sorted, uh, just a matter of, of when and not if that is announced. What has been announced, Adam, is the, the World Cup draw, which sees uh, Ireland play Scotland once again in the pool stages, as well as South Africa, and then European and Asian qualifiers that uh, everyone else will beat. Um, but we also know then that it's going to be what either France or New Zealand in the quarterfinals. As Jolan's comment piece in today's paper sort of hinted at, a lot can change between now and, uh, what is it, September or October 2023. But for what it is now, it looks very difficult for Ireland to get beyond the quarterfinals again. Yeah, it's it's very tough to sort of project three years into the future. Um, if, If the World Cup was being played right now, yeah, you, you would say that Ireland are probably finishing second in that group. They're playing the All Blacks in the quarterfinals and they're being knocked out in the quarterfinals again. But, you know, you, you got to remember whenever we were looking at the World Cup sort of a year, two years out last time, everyone thought that Joe Schmidt's Ireland might not only reach the semifinals, they might go all the way. So <laughs> we're, Johnny's 100% right. There's so much that can change in this time. I'm just disappointed it's a bit of deja vu. You know, you, for for a World Cup, you kind of want that bit of variety of new teams to play rather than rehashing the same games that were played four years prior. But, you know, here here we are. That's, that what ha- that's what happens whenever you make the draw three years in advance, I suppose. But, yeah, uh, look, it's it's too hard to project. As I said, right, right now, Ireland are a better team than Scotland. They're not as good a team as South Africa. So that's second place. They would play the All Blacks in the quarterfinals and the All Blacks are a better team than Ireland. So they get knocked out now. 
there, there's honestly really not much more you can say about it than that at the moment. Okay. Uh, yeah, I <laughs> need to do a South Africa at this stage. Um, well, like, you know, yes, an awful lot can change in three years. And South Africa is the example of hitting a nadir in um, 2017 and then winning the tournament. But if you want to analyze the draw now, it's a nightmare draw for Ireland. <laughs> yeah. Because the all, you know, much can change in three years. But what hasn't changed in 115 years is the fact that the All Blacks are good. They're always good. Yeah. And what hasn't changed in the course of Rugby World Cups is it's very difficult to play the hosts unless you're talking about England in 2015. Mm-hmm. So those are the two things, you know, those are two things that aren't going to change. Especially and when I, France are a team on the on the rise. Yes, Maybe and if you're that young core that they've got, they're going to be great by 2023, even better than they are now. Yeah. So, in an ideal world, which is what the last World Cup draw was supposed to be, you don't play one of the four best teams in the world until the semi-finals, and you are one of the best four teams in the world. Mm-hmm. That's how an ideal World Cup draw would go. Ireland, odds on, shall we say, will have to play two of the four best teams in the world most likely before they even get to the semi-finals yeah well look it'd be a good way to win it <laughs> if, you, if you've got to win the world cup you've got to be the best teams i'll not be putting any money on it all the same but here we are so uh jonathan i also must apologize for getting into trouble on on twitter for my headline on your uh, your newsletter yesterday uh, that was my doing, and as I've said, if uh, Ireland don't get beaten in the quarterfinal, um, I will apologise come the time. Well, um, as I said, it's Scotland that should really be offended. You're very much <laughs> overlooking the fact that Ireland could bomb out of the pools. Having to beat yeah, them. Ireland have to get into the quarters so, first. So if anything, my headline was too optimistic, is what you're saying. Um, before we go, we, we should note that Ulster A beat Munster 22-10 uh, last weekend, and there was... A stunning try by Aaron Sexton, which will do little to uh, dampen any um, fervour for his breakthrough into the senior team. Jonathan, do we know anything more about, about that game and anybody else who played well or otherwise? Well, not otherwise. Don't say otherwise. Just say if they played well. If they didn't play well, don't mention them. <laughs> <laughs> well, like Sexton, obviously, so fast that he uh, nearly was out of the in goal area by the time he put the ball down. So he nearly didn't yes. score, which was. Uh, Whenever you were watching it's, it, first, it's, it's, it took a moment to register with you that it was the same ground that you were in last night. So it's not like it was a small angle area or anything. It was just he nearly sprinted his way right through it. Yeah, it did look like he was going to mess it too. <laughs> um, yeah, look, it was a very decent uh, team that Munster sent. There was experience. You know, Tom O'Donnell was in there. Uh, Chris Clouter was in there. Um, Graham Roundtree was up watching the game. So the the monster senior staff obviously had some level of interest in the team that they were putting out there. Uh, so it's like it's a, it's a good win, and um, you know we talked about second rows a lot. Obviously, the second row is impressing has to be uh, has to be encouraging, and then Moxham is just another centre. So that's one more to add to the list of <laughs> of prospects in that position. So. Moxham can play in the back three as well, I believe. So yeah. he's got that versatility at least. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, I suppose, an encouraging, another encouraging result in what's going to be a very sort of 
sporadic and low key yeah. A campaign just by its by its strange nature this year, I suppose. Well, they'll be back in action on Friday at one o'clock when they play down uh, against Connacht Eagles. Um, the Ulster first team obviously uh, Gloucester on Saturday at quarter past three. I think I said that earlier, but just in case you forgot, it is quarter past three kickoff. So we'll be back next week to look back at what hopefully will be a return to winning ways. But until then, from Adam McKenna. Cheers, guys. From Jonathan Bradley. Thank you. Thanks for listening.